Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Well, good morning. My name is Ronnie. I'm one of the elders here at Gospel Community Church. And again, it's my privilege and honor to bring you God's word today. I, I was not initially scheduled to preach this Sunday, uh, but as some of you may know, if you, if you check your emails from Gospel Community Church, um, that in there, there was a prayer request. Mark McKay was actually scheduled to preach, uh, and we were continuing the series of judges, so he was kind of picking up where Rick left off the previous week, but unfortunately, his father passed away unexpectedly from a heart attack. And so, um, I, I'm not, I don't want to steal Mark's thunder. He had, he had prepared a message, and so we're going to be pulling out of the book of Judges today, and he'll, he will pick back up. Uh, obviously, he's, he's dealing with some family stuff right now, and uh, we're going to give him that time to, to take care of all that. And if you, if you guys could, obviously, throughout the week, be in prayer for him and his family. This was super unexpected. Um, but also, we're going to take a little moment before we dive into today's sermon just to pray together as a church. Um, it, and yeah, anyway, you can love on Mark and him and his family. I wouldn't maybe not flood him with a bunch of text messages right away, but um, he's been kind of blindsided by this, so we could love him in that way. Instead of continuing in Judges, I, I told Rick... Um, I'd fill in and, and shot a couple people that work at the Church of Passage that I, I thought would be helpful to go through, especially in light of suffering and even just some things that I've been studying in, in my own study in Romans 8. So today we'll look at Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30, if you want to start finding your way there in your Bibles now. Two of the classes I'm, I'm currently going through in my semester at Western Seminary are an ethics class, like ministerial ethics, so how people in ministry should behave and some things to be on the lookout for, and also an apologetics class. And if you're unfamiliar with the word apologetics, it's from the Greek word apologia that we find in 1 Peter 3.15, where he charges us to be able to give a reasonable defense for any that would question the hope within us. And this field of apologetics has been developed out of that, and it's just answering objections that people may have to the Christian faith. And what's interesting about those two classes is ethics and addressing issues that people may have with Christianity and the church in general, they kind of intersect a lot in a lot of unique and interesting ways. The last couple weeks have been, for lack of a better term, interesting, as it's been like drinking from the fire hose, except for the fire hose is pouring out all kinds of filth and guck. So it's been like the most disgusting fire hose ever that's basically been dumped into my mind over the last two weeks because uh, we've been going through the, the messiness of church, the messiness of life, and facing the reality of living in a post-Genesis 3 world, world. And if you're unfamiliar with what I mean by that, that the Bible teaches that God had created the world to be a certain way, and through the sin of Adam and Eve, it was plunged into darkness. Sin had entered into the world through the fall, and this is something we all recognize is the world is not how it ought to be. There's things that we recognize in the world that are, that there's something wrong, that there's something missing. And so I've been looking deeply into a lot of those things, exploring uh, the messiness of all this. Two books that I've had to read through the last week, one was Facing Messy Stuff in the Church, and there was a bunch of case studies specifically geared towards things that have happened in ministry 
happened to people in the church and just different things that pastors have had to respond to over the years. So uh, this and another book I'll talk about in a second that I've had to read the last week. This is an example of some of the stuff that I've been, I've been reading through and we're going to look at as we go through Romans 8. This is all stuff that, mind you, is in the context of ministry and church. This is stuff that's happening inside the church from these case studies that I read through. Depression, sexual harassment, gambling, pornography, divorce, suicide, AIDS, grief, spouse and child abuse, alcohol abuse, adultery, child molestation, sexual deviation, miscarriage, stillborn babies, death in the womb, murder, abort, and abortion, and a couple other case studies in the appendix. And then I read an entire book on nothing but preventing and responding to child abuse within the church. And so these are the, the studies that I've dived into, and it's just been a very grim reminder of the truth of the world that we live in, that the, even the Christian church isn't a safe place where we can come and you're not going to experience any kind of darkness. It's not a, an escape from the world, and there really isn't any kind of escape from the world while you're in it. We see the darkness that's all around us. Uh, and I'm reminded of it all the more as my family prepares to head up to Washington next week to essentially say goodbye to my grandfather who's on, who's on hospice. And so this is another reminder that things aren't the way they ought to be. And with the passing of Mark's father, we're reminded again that there is suffering and there's pain in this world. As Rick mentioned and, and had some of us stand up a couple weeks ago, over the last year or two, a lot of us have faced a lot of difficulties with the pandemic and, and different heat, for lack of a better term, amongst the culture and division within the church. It's been very difficult for a lot of people. There's been jobs lost. There's been people lost, dreams shattered and crushed. And, and we are reminded all the more every day that there's something missing. That the world that God made was good, or, or this world that God made was good. God said that it was good, but evil has come and is now a part of it. The fall has twisted it so that it no longer is what it ought to be. And we're not the only ones that recognize this, just those in the Christian faith. The culture at large recognizes these things. They'll often ignore the teaching of the Bible and what the Bible has to say on these matters, but it's, it's unavoidable. And I'm dating myself quite a bit here, but has anybody seen the movie Grand Canyon, 1991 film with Danny Glover and Kevin Kline? Grand Canyon? Not a single person? Maybe that's not a good reference. <laughs> Does anybody know who Danny Glover is? Lethal Weapon? Couple people, or that's, I'm, that's, I'm not saying go watch Lethal Weapon. That's not an endorsement of those movies. But I'm just trying to give some context to who the character is. You don't need to have seen the movie. I'll, I'll, I'll mention the scene and I'll share a quote from the movie. If you, I, don't, I don't want to recommend the movie either, but there's one particular scene that maybe you could go look up on YouTube and it might be interesting for you. But Kevin Klein plays this, this rich white guy who, who's in this particular scene. He's driving and he gets a little lost in the city and he winds up in a bad part of town. And while in a bad part of town, his car ends up breaking down. And so he's in this really nice car. I'm not a car person. I couldn't tell you what kind of car it was, but it's a really nice car. He's broken down and he has to get out of the car and go call a tow truck to come pick him up. And while he's waiting in his car for the tow truck to come, he's all of a sudden surrounded by a bunch of young guys, thugs, basically. They're, they're going to sit there and heckle and harass him while he's sitting in his car waiting for the tow truck. And so the guys are giving him grief about his nice car and everything and, and you know, tell him to step out of the car. And he's kind of just a little frozen, doesn't know what to do, and one of the guys lifts up his shirt and flashes a gun to him and tells him, you need to get out of the car. Well, all of a sudden, Danny Glover's character shows up in his tow truck, 
and pulls out in front of the vehicle and starts acting as if everything were normal, kind of ignores the guys and starts hooking the guy's car up. And he's like, all right, we're going we're gonna to hook up and you're going to ride with me. And the thugs are like, I think he's disrespecting you. Like, you're not going to say anything? And he kind of walks over and he, he addresses the young man. and He asks him as a favor to kind of let him go, let him do his job. And so he says, I'm going to grant you that favor. He's like, but let me ask you this. He says to Danny Glover's character, are you doing this? Are you asking me this question out of a sign of respect or because I got the gun? And this is what Danny Glover says. This is really interesting. And, and it's true of our world. Danny Glover says in response to the young man, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. I mean, maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. That dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is. And this is the reality we find ourselves today as we mourn with those who mourn as commanded in Romans 12, and we consider the loss in Mark's family and even the losses amongst ourselves. So before I read the passage, we're going to pray together as a church. Uh, We'll pray for the world, and then we'll pray for Mark and his family. And when I'm done, I just want to take a moment of silence. I will pause and give the church and everybody here a moment to pray individually for Mark and everything that he's going through right now. Um, if you don't know God, and this may be potentially awkward time for you as we pray, don't let it be. Use this moment. Ask God to reveal himself to you, maybe even in the midst of your own suffering that you're working through. God oftentimes does reveal himself in some of the trials. So if, if that is an awkward time, don't let it be. Ask God just to reveal himself while we pray for Mark and his family, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, there is evil out in the world. There is evil in our hearts. We are constantly reminded and brought to face Sometimes the, the cruelness of this world, and, and many of us could be hurting now and have hurt over the last couple of years, and, and will face some form of, of pain and evil and suffering in the future, possibly even in, in the near future. God, we pray for the church, that we wouldn't run from the messiness of the world, but be the light that you've called us to be in the midst of it that we would point people back to what the world was supposed to be and forward to the future hope that we have in Christ. He is restoring and making all things new. I pray that the church would be the light that shines the world onto this truth, that they would see it and believe in Christ and what he is doing and reconciling all of creation to yourself. We pray for Mark, God, that you would comfort him, that you would be near him and his family as they grieve the loss of his father, whom he was close to. I pray that you would just be very near and consoling and holding his family tight to you. And I pray that as a church, we, we would mourn with him, that we would love him well, and we would mourn with and love those in our church well who are struggling with difficult things. That we wouldn't shy away from the messiness and seek to live in little holy huddles, but we would roll up our sleeves and dive into the messiness of the world because of the future hope we have, God. God, thank you for your promises. Thank you for this community. And I, I pray that we would grow in community and love towards one another. 
and that through that love we would, we would point people to the cross and to Christ and what he's done for us. Amen. I'll read the text. If you want to jump there in your Bibles, uh, Romans 8, 18 through 30, and, and follow along. It's always a good practice to open the Word of God and make sure I'm not saying anything crazy that's not actually in there or anybody else that steps up here. So I'll, I'll read and then we'll dive into the passage. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Starting in verse 18, one of the very first words that Paul uses here in the Greek, uh, he, uses, he says, for I consider that the sufferings. Now, um, using the word consider is significant and that it might carry a little bit more certainty than is carried over into the English. Not, not to over convolute this, but in the Greek, there's different, there's different ways of communicating verbs. And we do this in the English, but there's ways in which you can co co communicate a verb in the realm of possibility. We do this in English by saying something like if, or we may, I may go to the mall later. It's not certain, and it's not saying in the future, I will absolutely go to the mall, but it's saying I might go to the mall. It's the realm of possibility. Paul doesn't actually use that in saying the word consider. It's more in the indicative mood, which is typically a matter of statement or fact. He's saying it sounds like, for I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing. You might hear that in the English and saying, is he unsure of whether or not the suffering will be something that will pale in the comparison to the future glory that we have? Or is he saying it absolutely is? And I believe the Greek would give evidence to say that this is a matter of fact in the mind of Paul, that this is something that we will experience, that the suffering we have now in this world will greatly pale. So much so... Uh, he, he, when he talks about comparing the suffering we endure now to the future hope of glory, he says that there is no comparison. It's not even worth setting the two up. If you were going to rate the suffering that you experience in this life on a scale of 1 to 10, and then the future hope of glory that we have in Christ for those that have placed their faith in him, Paul's saying it's not even worth putting a number on those two. It, you couldn't create a scale that could possibly compare the two realities that we'll experience in the life of the Christian, the one that we have now and the one to come. Now, that's a big statement that Paul gives the church here. 
And he's going to back that up in a second. So Paul is saying that we, what we, he's not saying that what we endure here does not matter. He's not trivializing the pain and the difficulty of the world we experience. He's not saying that at all. But what he is saying is that we do not suffer in vain. He's saying that there's no such thing as purposeless evil and that there is a point and purpose behind all of our suffering and what we endure. We don't suffer as those without hope. Paul would go on to say later in another, less, uh, another, another epistle to the church in Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, he says, we don't suffer as those without hope. He backs up the statement in the following verses and argues his case in verse 19, takes this big statement and lays down some theological justification for it in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. I pointed to this a bit in the example that I gave from the 1991 film Grand Canyon. This is something that even the culture at large recognizes. The whole, the whole of creation is eagerly longing for the revealing that God is going to do. Whether they acknowledge it or not, there is a certain groaning and hopeful expectation of things to come. There is something wrong with the world. Evil is out there. It's in us. This is one of the biggest, well, there are many things that convince me of, of the truthfulness of Scripture. But one of, the, one of the weird things that you would think, really, that, that convinces you of the truthfulness of Scripture is my own sin. The fact that it's not just a light, a light switch I can turn off, that it's something I actually struggle with and have to fight with daily. You know, if, if it was, I, I feel like there would be at least a couple people living on earth that aren't perfect. Maybe they don't get every single thing right, but at least don't sin. You know, don't at least explicitly violate the commands of God. In the grand scope of human history, you think there would have been someone eventually, maybe a couple people that would have lived without having broken God's law, you know, made it into adulthood without breaking God's law very explicitly and obviously, but that's not the case. We find that every single person at some point violates his commands. Many of the examples I worked through of evil and suffering in, in this last week were case studies, as I said, from the church and pastors dealing with and even committing some of these evils that have taken place within the church. But we all know this isn't how it's supposed to be. C.S. Lewis mentions this as a big factor in his having come to faith. He says, in, and I think it's his book, Mere Christianity, that before he had come to Christ, he would sit there and use the evil in this world as an objection to the Christian faith, which people still do to this day many times. But he said, I would, I would look at the evil in the world, I would look at suffering, and then I would question and challenge God. But where was I getting these ideas of perfection. Uh, he says a man doesn't sit there and look at a crooked line and call it a crooked line unless he has some idea of what a straight line is. And where do we get this perception of a straight line that we would sit there and judge the world? It's odd. Even those that are unfamiliar with the Bible recognize that there's something wrong and amiss amongst the world. This is uh, Stephen Fry. You can actually look this up on YouTube. A famous notable atheist. Um, I'm trying to think of movies he was in. And I, I was worry about saying movies from the pulpit because somebody's going to watch it and think it was an endorsement. This isn't an endorsement, but V for Vendetta, I know he's in that movie, Stephen Fry, he plays like a talk show host, if you're unfamiliar, he's a very notable atheist, and one of the big problems he has with Christianity is the fact that they're suffering in the world. So he points to specific examples of suffering and says that there can't possibly be a God, or at least if there is, they, well, an interviewer asks him, what will you say to God when you get to heaven? And he says, I would question him on this, basically. I seriously doubt that, but I digress. You say God is evil. Someone like Stephen Fry says that God is evil for allowing these things to continue. According to what? According to what? 
What standard are people holding up to God? You say Christians can be evil. They can be rude. They can be, they can be, oh, what's that big hypocrite? People say Christians are hypocrites all the time. According to what? What standard are you using to determine and judge these things? I hope you don't intend to use the Bible that you reject to judge the behaviors of Christians. That would be very odd and unusual, but people do it all the time, especially when when people are bringing challenges against the world and saying this is evil and that's evil. Well, what is evil? Where do you get that concept in a natural world? Where does that come up in in a society throughout human history? Like where, where does this concept of evil and good come up? It's something that people are borrowing from scripture to attack it. Many people appeal to a standard of perfection they have not yet justified in order to stonewall Christians who are seeking to point them to the solution to these very problems, which is Jesus Christ. So why is the world the way it is? Look at verse 20. It says the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God brought the curse in this world for a purpose. Well, what is that purpose? Look at verse 21. To set it free from bondage to corruption. Why is the world the way it is? You, me, all of us. It's interesting, the Times of London in the early 1900s, they sent out letters to prominent writers in the community to get responses to this question. What's wrong with the world today? They send these letters out to different authors and writers at the time. Anybody familiar with uh, G.K. Chesterton? It's kind of like the Catholic C.S. Lewis. Um, In response to that question, G.K. Chesterton, a notable theologian from that time, sent a letter to the Times responding to the question, what's wrong with the world today? By simply, his letter said this, Dear sir, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. That was his response. What's wrong with the world? I am. Humanity not only brought corruption into the world through the fall, but we keep it here. When I I first saw that video from Stephen Fry, he, he pointed to a very specific example of suffering in the world. And, and I thought as he was saying these things, I was like, what are you doing about it? It was a very specific example of, of children that were suffering from a very specific disease. And I was like, I'd be curious to know what exactly he's doing to rectify that. I, I might get some flack here for saying this, and I'd, I, I'm totally okay with taking this. I, I, I put this together in a very short amount of time, so if, feel free to throw your stones. But, and maybe I shouldn't say names, we'll just say it rhymes with Shmesh Shmezos. Um, <laughs> somebody profited very greatly off the sufferings of the world over the last two years. Not to say that's wrong, and you're free to do whatever you want with your money. Um, I'm not here to tell anybody, but does anyone honestly look at and see um, a five billion four-minute space trip to uh, outer space as a little imbalance between human hubris and the call in God's life to love our neighbors? Am I the only one that sees that? Maybe I am. You can, you can totally give me grief about that later. But somebody who profited a lot off of, our, off of our sufferings in the COVID pandemic, where a lot of people were having to shop online, who he profited very richly, uh, took a four-minute space trip. A lot of people had been making jokes on social media I've seen. They're like, hey, Amazon employees can finally use the bathroom while he's gone, and different stuff like that. 
So it, we see it, it's interesting. When people bring these challenges of suffering in the world, I want to ask the question, what do you think God made you for? You're not a cool collectible meant to sit inside of some kind of pristine plastic up on God's shelf that he can look at and say, oh, cool. You're a hammer. You're a screwdriver. You're a scalpel. You're a tool meant to glorify God in the service to one another and love for one another. This is why we have hands, opposable thumbs. Suck it, monkeys. But we're able to pick up things and use things to serve other people to build and care for those that are suffering from pain. Why did Jesus say in Luke 10, 27, that we should love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind? All the things that God has gifted us with, these different possibilities that we have to, to love God and serve one another. This is how Jesus said that the, that the world would know the people of God in their love for one another. So in our service to one another, people would look at that and it would be a reflection of God's love for us in Christ. I mentioned this not too long ago in, in a sermon, but when we look at Philippians, we see that Jesus Christ, he came and as he's here, he's the example. This is the perfect man. What kind of form is the perfect man come in? Does anybody remember what I said? He takes on the form of what? The perfect man. He's meant to reflect exactly what we're supposed to be. What form does Jesus take on? The form of a servant. Exactly. If we want to say, what does it look like to truly be human, to fulfill our purpose that God has given us? It's servant. Because Jesus came and served us. The debt we owed to God for the, for the sins that we've committed against him, a gap we could have never bridged. Jesus came, and we talk a lot about his death and his resurrection, but we oftentimes forget that he lived in perfect obedience to the Father. Try doing that for five minutes. So he lived perfectly and served us in this way that he lived this perfect life, went to the cross, suffered far beyond anything we may suffer. In, in every single way, Jesus suffered. There is no way in which you personally could suffer that Jesus himself did not endure. Betrayed by his friends, I've often said and worked through this stuff, betrayed by his friends, falsely accused. Some of us have experienced these things. We often see Jesus depicted on the cross with a cloth, but we know from history, from the context of history, that people often hung there absolutely naked. And so in a sense, he was even sexually shamed and mocked while he stood up there, spit on and made fun of, beaten and physically abused, enduring all that so that through faith in Christ, we would be reconciled to God, that God would see us as he sees Christ as that perfect servant. In all the ways we fail to love and serve one another, Jesus perfectly served us so that God would see us as that perfect servant, that we would be one uh, among many firstborn brothers, as it says here in this passage. So who does God want fixing the problem of this world? His people, the church, the light. Of, these, are, these are God's physical hands on earth that the spirit, not through our own means, but the spirit is working through us to serve and love and care for one another. Amen? Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only creation, but we ourselves. Paul here talks to the groaning that all of creation has felt in its hopeful expectation of salvation, but also ourselves as followers of Christ. We feel this pull. When you, as someone who's placed their hope of salvation in nothing else but Christ alone, Christians, 
We're looking for nothing other than Jesus Christ as our only hope and salvation. When we, those who say that and claim the name of Christ, when we engage in sin, we come face to face with this inner groaning. How many of, of us, sincere believers, sincere followers of Christ, have called out to God, please take this from me. I don't want to struggle with this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. As we continue to engage in the same sin over and over and again, crying out to God, please take this from me. We get a sense of that own internal struggle and longing for the glory of God where this would no longer be a thing, where we could walk in the peace, the shalom of God with one another, not, with, not, with this conflict not existing. We're reminded of our great need for a savior and great need for hope of the gospel without which we are lost when we experience this struggle and this pain within ourselves. Verse 24. But it's in this hope that we are saved, Paul says. It's our future hope that saves us. Some of us, to some of us, that may sound odd. The reality, the reality is that the aspect, that aspect of the gospel we focus very heavily on, even every Sunday, I, and I'm, I'm not saying this is a fault or flaw of GCC, it's just naturally, a, it's an aspect of the gospel we focus a lot of attention on, is um, Jesus living, dying, ra- rising, and ascending for our salvation. This is a lot of what we focus on. We focus on the fact that Jesus came, he bore our sins on the cross so that God would see us perfectly. But there are many aspects and facets to the gospel, like a diamond that you would turn and spin. When Paul talks about a future hope of glory, it's like this. When, when you look at everything pre-Christ, pre-incarnation, that is, so the Old Testament, they were looking forward to a future hope. It wasn't the sacrifices, and it wasn't obedience to the law of God that saved Old Testament believers. When they would go and they would sacrifice, these were signs and symbols of a future coming. There was this long, hopeful expectation of the Messiah that would come and redeem his people, that they were doing these things in hopeful expectation of the future. So their gospel was a future hope of Jesus coming. In the same way that they had this future hope of the Messiah coming to redeem God's people, we have a future hope of God redeeming and reconciling the world fully. In a sense, Jesus brought the kingdom when he came in his earthly ministry, but one day it will be fully reunited, heaven and earth, back as it was supposed to be. So this is the future hope that we are saved in. Another aspect of the gospel that Paul here is alluding to, he's talking about the suffering in this world and all these different things we experience, and the future hopeful expectation that we would no longer endure these things, but finally and fully be in the presence of God for all eternity. And in verse 25, we hope for this future In faith, we don't stress over the timing of the kingdom, but live as if every hour could be our last on this earth. We hold loosely the good gifts that God has given us, enjoying them all the same, but holding ever so tightly to the surpassing joy and pleasure of knowing our God. This is where we find our hope. Not in fleeting pleasures that pass away, you know, after a couple seconds, but the eternal hope of our salvation. Verse 26. Paul talks about the Spirit helping us in our weakness. Our weakness has been, our weaknesses have warped the world, but it has also warped ourselves. And this is the very reason we need the Spirit. Even praying to God for uh, sanctification in our own lives or for healing in this world or different things that would build and encourage one another up or even build ourselves up. Uh, Sin has so marred us that we struggle even with these things. I mean, not only, if we're being honest, 
and I'm sure this is the, the case in the Pacific Northwest, do we struggle in our frequency of prayer, especially as modern, you know, enlightened thinking Americans, we often don't look to God in praying for, pro- for solutions to the problems. We, also, we oftentimes look to practical means. I will be the first one to commit or, or to admit that I fall into this problem many times. As I've mentioned in our community group, I grew up secular, atheist, agnostic, thinking that all this was silly and foolish and, and living a very practical life. And so I, you know, I wasn't saved until sophomore year of college around the age of 22. And so having lived and reordered my life so, for so long in a very practical and natural way, it's very hard for many Westerners to approach God in prayer. So many of us fail in our frequency, but also in coming to God, we oftentimes don't know what to pray for. And Paul says that the Spirit is even helping us in this thing, in praying. We would think, surely if I just prayed, I should be good, but even the deceitfulness of the human heart makes it difficult to experience God, to desire Him, and to earnestly seek Him in prayer. Uh, the Bible alludes to this in Jeremiah 17.9. We, we so easily deceive ourselves and deceive one another. This is one of the sad Realities that I experienced in this book on, um, on preventing and responding to child abuse, this is, it's especially sad in a lot, a lot of ways because it is really, a lot of people don't want to believe this. We see in the movies or the TV shows that, you know, it's kind of cool in like a detective show where they're like, oh, they're able to find out the ways that people are lying. This is so far from the truth. It is so easy to lie to people. It is so easy to deceive people and it is so hard to detect a lie especially somebody who's good at it. When I, as I was reading through this book on sexual predators and those that seek to especially take advantage of Christians, unfortunately, because we're very quick to forgive and, and, and not be judgmental and we want to see the best in people, unfortunately, a lot of people take advantage of churches and, and specifically target them for this reason. But the human heart is so deceitful. We can trick ourselves. We can trick one another. It's, it's, it's disheartening to know that that's a reality of life. And even Christians in praying to God oftentimes don't know what to say or even try to deceive God in what they say. But thankfully, God sees through to the human heart and the Spirit even helps us in our prayer to to offer up um, groanings that we ourselves can't even communicate to God because of the ways in which we're deceiving ourselves. And and it's so funny. It's so funny reading this book and being reminded of Christians and our, because it was, um, it was examining Christians and our behavior towards people people inside the church and outsiders. And because we're so quick to see the good in people and uh, so quick to not pass judgment and we want, you know, we want to see the best, we want to forgive people that we're often target of, of sexual predators, which is so funny because growing up outside the church, this is one of the things that I heard oftentimes, like over and over again, that Christians are very judgmental. Christians are judgmental. They're very judgmental people. Honestly, I think we could grow in that a little bit, <laughs> a little bit more judgmental. Uh, this has not been my experience at all. Having someone, being somebody that did not grow up in the church and now has lived in it. Um, I, I've told brothers in Christ things that I haven't told my best friend from growing up, whom I still talk to, uh, even unbelieving family. Like I feel the least judged amongst my brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't know where that concept or, or where that idea springs up in culture. If that's your perception of Christian uh, culture in America, I'm telling you as somebody who was an outsider for a long time and has now been a part of this family for a while, that, I, that is like a cultural fiction. It is not. Uh, th- this book reminded me all the more of, of that thing, uh, of that fact that Christians are one of the slowest to judge. Verse 28 and 30. I digress. Back in the text, uh, we'll close with this. 
Looking at verses 28 through 30. Paul talks about God working a lot of the suffering, a lot of what's going on in the world, and bringing it together for our benefit and for good. And we see examples of this in Scripture. Back in Genesis, we see um, in Genesis 50, the, pl- the famine that had swept over Egypt and the situation with Joseph was put in by his brothers, this awful situation. I mean, it was, can any, if you know the story, you know, could you imagine going through that? Your brother's basically arguing over whether or not they should kill you and then end up deciding to sell you into slavery. And then you end up in prison a couple times. You get accused of raping, you know, it was just like, he got it really bad. And at the end of all that, when his, when his brothers kind of confront him after their father died, he, he says to his brothers, you meant this for bad, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good, that many people would be alive today. So we see examples of scripture where God takes the pain and, and distraught in this world and brings it together for his beauty. And there is no more poignant example in all of human history of this than the cross. Amen. I mean, this was the only innocent man to have ever lived, and I've already briefly discussed what exactly happened leading up to the crucifixion and what took place during it. This was the darkest moment in human history, but something that we will praise God forever for in eternity, something that was for God's glory and our good. So Paul here says that God is working all these things together that while we may not understand and struggle with the difficulty as we go through it, God is doing something beautiful that we in our 20, 30, 40 years of existence will not be under, are not able to understand now. But on the other side of glory, all will be revealed and we will glorify God for it forever. This world has much beauty in it. I'm not denying that. Just hear me. I know this sermon may seem a little dark um, to some. This world has a lot of beauty in it. We still see many reflections of beauty in this world. But like a broken mirror, Shattered into a million pieces, the image is all distorted and many things are missing and out of place. And it seems absolutely unrepairable. Millions of pieces all over the ground. But we can see from the pieces where they used to fit together and could even be restored again. Paul gives us an assurance in verse 28 that though it looks like a mess, we might cut ourselves on the glass as we seek to work through the spirit of God and restoring the world back to its intended purpose. God is bringing and restoring this world to its former glory and a greater glory, even so, for our good and for the good of his people. All of this has his hands behind it. There is intention, there is purpose, there is meaning behind every sliver of brokenness in this world as God foreknew, as it says, looking through verses 30, as God foreknew and predestined all this to take place according to his eternal decree that his people would become like Christ, all that what we hate, all that we hate in ourselves is being restored in the image of Christ. All the brokenness that we see out in the world, the evil out there and the evil in here is being restored in the image of Christ. Praise God that he has given us a new identity. As it says in closing, as in, in this closing of verse 30, as firstborn sons of many brothers. And as Paul says, this is a sure thing. As those he predestined, he also called In verse 30, those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Every step of our salvation has been graciously given to us by our God through faith in Christ. 
This is why the gospel is so important here at GCC and something that we will reflect on continually. Not only because we're so quick to forget it and constantly seek to justify ourselves before God by our own actions, this is true, but, but this is the great part. All of the Bible is pointing to this one story. It's why it's our call to constantly point people back to what God is doing in us and the world and the great hope that we have in the future and the brokenness and the messiness of life. All of the Bible is pointing to this message of the cross, this message of reconciliation. And look at the tense of that last word in verse 30. Our glorification is a sure thing in Christ. He also glorified, it says. Our glorification is a sure thing in Christ, and the sufferings of this present time are nothing to be compared to that glory. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we sometimes, especially over this last year or two, are reminded daily that things are not the way they ought to be. And, and, and many people struggle with this and have fallen away from the faith because of, of these difficulties. And I, I pray that you would encourage us and speak to us through our, in our pain, showing us uh, the truth of this story that you're telling, the truth of the gospel, how you're reconciling and redeeming all these things for your glory. I pray that you'd be with Mark and his family, and I pray that as a church, you would help us be the hands uh, that are serving, loving one another, and speaking the gospel, communicating the gospel, pointing people uh, like with a, with a very strong light, uh, pointing that on the gospel and drawing people to the future hope we have, the future hope of all of humanity. And you're reconciling all things to yourself, God. We thank you, God, for doing this for us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.